0: This war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. Hope paid a visit to the Russian embassy, attempting to mobilize his direct contacts with Vladimir Putin's political Biden, time to act is now. Oppose export controls and sanctions.
1: We, the United States of America, stand with the Ukrainian people.
0: This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Explore the beliefs shaping our world. And this week, we turn our attention to the war in Ukraine. As the Russian military crossed into the sovereign nation of Ukraine, presidents and prime ministers, religious leaders, and millions of people took to the streets across the world. In the course of a week, the geopolitical alliances and the global economy shifted dramatically. Among the currents in this story are reminders— that war is hardest on the most marginalized. On the ground, stories of people finding themselves in desperate situations. Foreign exchange students, Ukrainians, children, the elderly, everyday people, making that difficult decision whether now was the time to flee, to walk for hours, some for days, in search of refuge. At the time of this recording, the nation of 40 million... Has witnessed the exodus of nearly a million, according to the UN High Commission for Refugees. Later in the program, we'll hear from a church pastor in the small town of Svedlusk in central Ukraine. 20 years ago, Pastor Benjamin Morris came on a short mission trip. He went back to the States, graduated, and then decided to move to Ukraine, where he met his wife, started a family, and together they planted a church. In the face of war, he and his family are not leaving. But first, we take a look at the geopolitical forces influencing the crisis and how it's impacting religion in Ukraine and beyond. With political scientist Dr. Oksana Shevnel an associate professor at Tufts University. She is an expert in national identity in the post-communist region, from the process of nation and state building to religious politics and the challenges to democratization. Her analysis of the Russian-Ukraine conflict has been widely reported in recent weeks, especially her warning to the West to not underestimate the Russian leader's ambitions.
1: Putin wants to destroy Ukraine. He wants to remake the world order, the European order, security architecture, rights of countries to exist as separate entities. That's what it's all about.
0: A little history. Ukraine is a nation roughly the size of Texas. It's the second largest country on the continent after Russia. It shares borders with Russia, Belarus, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, and Moldova. Ukraine declared its independence from the USSR in August of 1991. At that time, Russian President Vladimir Putin was 39 years old. He was working as an external affairs officer for the mayor of St. Petersburg. Six years later, then-president Boris Yeltsin appointed Putin his prime minister, handpicking him as his successor. In 1999, when Yeltsin abruptly stepped down, Putin became president and has held a firm grip on his leadership for two decades. Bordering at the south, Ukraine has had several presidents and a complicated evolution, marked by internal battles between political factions and disputes over political alliances. In 2014, then-President Viktor Yanukovych rejected an opportunity to sign an agreement with the European Union. That triggered mass strikes and protests known as the Revolution of Dignity that ultimately led to Yanukovych being deposed from office. He was closely aligned with Mr. Putin. In the days after Yanukovych was removed, Russia proceeded to annex Crimea an act many describe as the beginning of the Russian-Ukrainian War. The country then elected Petro Poroshenko, a businessman and a nationalist leader who took steps to establish a Ukrainian national identity that included supporting the creation of its own independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church, one not under the leadership of Moscow. Ukrainian national politics, though, remained divided over many issues, reflecting the struggle within, from security to economic stability to the rise of separatist groups in the East. Unable to maintain popular support, in 2019, Poroshenko lost to a political newcomer, Vladimir Zelensky. Elected at the age of 41, Zelensky became the first Jewish president of the young nation, Although home to many religious minorities, it is a nation where more than 70% identify with Orthodox Christianity. Until his election, Zelensky was best known as an actor and comedian. It's a skill that has enabled him to understand and effectively communicate with different audiences. Adept at using media like Instagram and Facebook to speak directly to the world, he has become a David to Putin's Goliath and galvanized international support from leaders across the European Union. To Dr. Oksana Shevnil, Ukraine's President Zelensky embodies the aspirations of a young country, not just his ability to inspire fellow citizens to stay and fight and defend against the invading Russian forces, but a new sense of national identity and a common purpose, forged in large part because of Vladimir Putin. I spoke to her on Sunday, February 27th, mindful that events on the ground are rapidly changing.
1: The West must know this. Ukrainians are fighting. I have family in Ukraine. I have friends in Ukraine. I talked to my childhood friend yesterday, who is at a dacha, which is like, you know, summer kind of cottage community outside of Kiev, about 10 minutes from the nearby military airport. They're shelling. They're scared. They have kids. They have all their grandparents. But they organized in their village They go on daily patrols. They are in touch with the National Guard in the area. Men have went to the nearby military recruitment center. They received arms. My daughter's 15-year-old kids helped to put out um, fire from a Russian missile the other day. Ukrainians will fight. They will fight tooth and nail. And I think this is very important for the West to understand that. They are not expecting Westerners to come fight with them, but they are expecting any other support that can be offered.
0: Oksana, welcome to Inspired, uh, production of Interfaith Voices. I know this is an incredibly difficult time. I also understand that you are inundated with media requests for context and insight on trying to make sense of what is unfolding right now and trying to get an understanding of both the history of Ukraine and perhaps what the broader intentions of President Vladimir Putin are at this time.
1: Yes, thank you. Um, Well, the broader intentions of Putin, I think, are very clear, as it was never about NATO expansion. Ukraine was not in NATO, was not going to get into NATO. There was no consensus in NATO to accept Ukraine. Uh, But what really Putin is set on is to destroy Ukrainian sovereignty. He does not consider Ukraine to be a separate country, as he has written and talked on many occasions. He believes this mythology from the periods of Tsarist and Soviet empire that Ukrainians and Russians are somehow one people, and essentially independent, sovereign Ukraine is unacceptable to him. Unfortunately, the tragedy of it is that he seems to believe his own delusions that Ukrainians are really longing to be liberated from quote-unquote Nazi rule, as he calls Ukrainian government with Jewish president at the helm, and that the Russians would be welcome as liberators. What we are seeing now in the ground, that Ukrainians are resisting very stiffly, So Russian plans for quick takeover and people welcoming Russian soldiers have fallen through. But at already tremendous cost of life, and I'm afraid the worst is yet to come.
0: As you described this grim period, and of course, neither of us know what the future week is going to hold in terms of decisions, you are well aware that there has been this dominant narrative that has been put forward that this is all about NATO. And as you mentioned, describing the pretext for invading as some sort of attempt to squelch the rise of Nazism in Ukraine. Can you give a little bit of the historical context of where that might come from? And I'm thinking specifically the decommunization laws that passed in two thousand and fifteen
1: Let's talk a little bit about decommunization laws. So Ukraine had very complicated uh, history, as you know many of you listeners probably know. The country that's today Ukraine has been ruled by different countries of different periods of time. And especially during Second World War period, there was especially in Western Ukraine who had wanted, to have independent ukraine that did not exist was crushed by the bolshevik army after a period of short-lived independence after the bolshevik revolution treated first soviet occupation as occupation in 1939 and then when the germans came in 1941 some ukrainians welcomed it as a potential way to a, essentially a liberation from the soviet rule and the chance to establish separate independent state. now of course that didn't pan out And Ukrainian forces, some of them collaborated with the Nazis, including in the destruction of the Jewish community. And then they fought both the Nazi and the Soviet forces well into the 1950s in Western Ukraine. Now, from the Soviet point of view, of course, these forces, Ukrainians fighting the Soviet army, were clearly the enemy. And there was no way to sort of see these groups in any positive light or or their acts of fighting the Soviet state. Once Ukraine became independent, that became a more complicated question. Who were these people? Who were these Ukrainians who were fighting the Soviet troops? On the one hand, they maybe were not such positive people, because, again, especially given the collaboration with the Nazis and participation in the Holocaust of some of these groups. On the other hand, they fought for independent Ukraine. So in Ukraine, there has been domestic debate, public debate about how to sort of reconcile, you know, history, how to think about this period, how to assess it the decommunization law that basically said that uh, these groups who fought for Ukrainian state, including the groups who for a period of time participated with the, the Germans, that they are veterans and at the same time as the Soviet veterans are, right? So they're veterans, they're fighters for Ukraine, they're essentially the good guys. Was it that simple? No. And this is why many scholars who studied, historians, social scientists basically said that that law in a way sort of switched the Soviet paradigm. When the Soviet paradigm treated anybody who fought the Soviet state as an enemy, this decommunization law basically said anybody who fought for Ukraine is a good guy. Was that problematic? Yes, there were calls for certain amendments to the law, but this is sort of domestic political processes, domestic political debate. This is something countries who had complex history have wrestled with their complicated past. Is this justification? to say that this is some sort of Nazism and the country needs to be invaded. So I think these things have to be kept in context. This was something that Ukrainian society had to wrestle with, had to work through. It wasn't done perfectly. It was an ongoing process. And the fact that decommunization law changed the Soviet view of history, that by itself, I don't think is problematic because why should Ukraine keep all Soviet stereotypes, paradigms, approaches to history this is what putin wants any departure from the soviet view becomes nazism and i think this is very dangerous because his concept of denazification if uh, russia were to prevail and occupy ukraine we are going to see massive repression against civil society basically anybody from scholars to anti-corruption activists to civil society activists who questioned this sort of positive view of the Soviet past, as Putin has embraced it, people who studied the killer famine, the Holodomor of the early 1930s, which killed more than three million Ukrainians. In Ukraine, that has been considered, recognized as a genocide of the Ukrainian people. In the Soviet historiography, it was completely silenced. So basically, people who take a different view on the famine would be Nazis in Putin's interpretation. How do you describe the Putin narrative about Ukraine? Putin is engaging in retrospective nationalism. He is assigning to people, populations, who lived over these territories centuries ago, certain identities, that they were always Russian and they were never Ukrainian. This is completely wrong. Like, I'm not even before we get to historical details, which city was their first and so forth. I mean, the way of thinking of nations as somehow some nations being natural, quote-unquote, and some nations as being artificial, has been completely debunked. Nations are constructed through various political social processes over the course of relatively recent history, there is no such thing as some sort of objectively existing nation that proceeded through history in its unchanged form. His claim that somehow everybody thought of themselves as, you know, Russian or one with Russia, it just has no basis in reality. Now, Ukrainian nation-building process has been very complicated. There was never political state that, you know, and again, state is a very important actor, in forging common identities through education, through the you know, media, through print capitalism, all of these things, Ukrainians didn't have their own state. Yes, Kiev was there before Moscow, that is true. But the whole notion that some nation objectively existed through all this history and another nation is somehow artificial, as Putin claims, is just wrong. It's a strong way of looking at how nations developed historically in that part of the world or anywhere else
0: this retrospective nation identity building is also erasing the actual national identity building and the significant changes that have happened over the last 30 years.
1: That was a very active period of nation building. And the irony of it is that Putin, you know, is essentially has become one of the best nation builders in Ukraine, as in like uniting people with common identity. Mm. Because up until 2014, when Russia first invaded and the next Crimea and started separatist conflict in Donbass... Ukraine, you know, was often described as sort of divided society. That, again, has to do with historical differences between Ukrainian regions. The West and increasingly kind of the center of Ukraine gravitated more towards the West and the center in the, in the East and the South, where more Russians and Russian speakers live, kind of gravitated more towards Russia. And Ukrainian politics showed that over the course of the 30 years, the parliament was always kind of divided. There was always political competition. And I would argue that even after Russian President Yanukovych was driven out by street protests in 2014, that hadn't really changed. This electoral geography didn't go away, popular preferences didn't go away, sort of these divisions didn't go away. So in a way, if Putin did nothing in 2014, Russia could have continued to exert influence over Ukraine, through the oligarchs, through the media, through the electoral politics that it did all the way since 1991. But of course, you know, Putin instead decided to invade and that led to a sea change in Ukrainian public opinion. In February 2014, Putin moved to annex Crimea, that really changed identity in Ukraine. So it became more consolidated and more explicitly anti-Russian. So we see, you know, support for things such as integration with the EU as opposed to with the Russian-led customs union or Eurasian economic union. Support for NATO grew across the regions of Ukraine, including in historically pro-Russian regions. And this is a direct result of this first aggression in 2014. Now and here we come with the religious politics, because in Ukraine many people who consider themselves to be religious, you know majority is Orthodox. I think now we are again at the turning point for the Orthodox churches in Ukraine, because now that Putin started this war in Ukraine and the Russian patriarch blessed the efforts of Russian soldiers, the Ukrainian patriarch who heads the Moscow affiliated church is really facing kind of a dilemma. Right? Does he follow with his patrons or, you know, his superior, for lack of a better word, in Moscow? Or does he stand with the Ukrainian people? He already made a statement that he condemns um, the invasion. So that's actually a big change. And now there is this kind of dilemma that this church has. They have always tried to present themselves in Ukraine as a real Ukrainian church. And it's also important to keep in mind that among the believers themselves, it's the western part of Ukraine that is much more religious. So the stronghold of the Moscow-affiliated church is actually in western and northern Ukraine. And the voters are not that different. So I think now is a real possibility, again for these two churches to unite. That attempt to unite them failed in 2018. Instead, sort of a new church was formed, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine recognized by the Ecumenical Patriarch, and this schism of split in orthodoxy continued in Ukraine. And I think we are now looking at potential another turning point. Um, if these two churches were now again to unite, that would be yet another achievement, quote-unquote, of Putin. Because again, it would be his aggression that bridged yet another division in Ukraine.
0: Ukraine is a multi confessional state and there are people who identify with many different traditions. It's mentioned often in American media that Zelensky is Jewish and it's often used as a way of dismissing the the accusations or the narrative that Putin is laying forward.
1: I think, as you say, I mean, first of all, it means that sort of the accusation that somehow it's a Nazi government is like ludicrous Nazi government headed by a Jew. I mean, like you can't make this up. Right. But I mean, as far as his identity, um, it's also important to keep in mind the Soviet experience and what it did to, you know, Jewish uh, faith in particular. In the Soviet Union, being Jewish was essentially an ethnic identity as opposed to religious identity. Soviet Union kept... Um, people's ethnically ascribed identities in their passport and Jew was one of them. So if you were, you know, written in your passport that you are Jew, that was your ethnic identity. Of course, as you said, because of the general kind of anti-church, anti-religious thrust of the communist rule, uh, there was difficult to practice any religion, especially Judaism. There was substantial anti-Semitism. There were sort of political suspicions also that the Jews maybe were not particularly loyal Soviet citizens. So I think Zelensky's family is typical in that way, that their Jewish faith was not really sort of active religious faith. So it was part you know, of the identity, more ethnic than religious. Um, of course, there was a memory, you know, as he said, his family suffered in the Holocaust, participated in the Second World War, but he wasn't like attending a synagogue or anything like that. And he's still, to, to my knowledge, he's not a practicing religious, you know, an observant Jew, as we would say. Clearly, he won by landslide. So that's not, you know, an issue for Ukrainians that their president is Jewish. And the that he is not religious, it actually might be kind of politically not a bad thing, because he cannot be unlike, say, the previous president, who very actively supported the new the formation of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, independent from Moscow
0: the religious politics that you just mentioned in the United States. And I know you live here and you teach at Tufts University. You are well aware that in our American conversation about politics and understanding the different actors in civil society, religious voices play a role in that in the United States. What is the backstory of how faith has played out in Ukraine over the last 30 years, not in terms of the leadership, per se, of the organizations and institutions, but how has it played out in the everyday conversations and the politics of how people come to opinions and points of view?
1: I would say that it plays less of a role than it does in this country. Sort of opinions of religious leaders, you know, where they would stand on issues and know, their ability to influence their congregations one way or the other, I would say is less in Ukraine than it is here. And I think if we see that also in the polls, when people are asked, like, you know, is it important, like to your say, voting or any kind of political preference, what your priest would say, most people say that that's not how they make their decisions. Now that said, I think uh, at the local level, this was sort of one of the elements of this uh, political battle between the two Orthodox churches. There were reports that in the politically charged election campaign of 2004 in particular already, and also in 2013. But that hasn't really particularly influenced, again, voting preferences or um, voting actions by the Ukrainian citizens. Now, religion, of course, plays various other ways at the local level, creating community support, um, you know, spiritual support, um, I think there has been often times, especially if we're talking about smaller settlements, maybe when the church is the center of social activity as well, things such as, you know, helping soldiers at the front. Um, that could be organized.
0: What is the infrastructure of the faith community in Ukraine?
1: I think, I mean, I would expect that, of course, you know, active faith communities would step into humanitarian role as they, you know, tend to do everywhere. But again, because in Ukraine, the level of religiosity is not that high. And especially if we're talking about urban centers, um, there are many other ways for people to organize outside of the church. So if I were to make sort of a prediction, I would say that this kind of church based or faith based organizing would be looked at local levels with the smaller communities. And I think it would be somewhat less prominent um, in the urban centers, not to say that it wouldn't be important, right? Obviously, people can go to church if they can receive some help there for those people who are faithful, who are observant. That's an important source of support. But Ukrainian society has a history of organizing in various other non-sort of non-religious ways. And even if we think back to the protests of 2014, that was actually also yes, the church the, at the time, Kiev Patriarchate, the schismatic quote-unquote church, served as an important source of shelter for the protesters. The um, Saint Michael's Monastery in central Kiev, but also the protesters hung a banner in the main square that said, "Freedom is our religion." Mm. And I think that's very important because that sort of you know, goes that for people, yes, you know, they self-identify as Orthodox, but they're not, many of them are not practicing. Many of them, you know, sort of, it's a very fluid phase, right? People baptize their children, they get married in the church, they, you know, bury their relatives, but for many, that's sort of the extent of their religious participation. The main thing is freedom, and then people can be free to choose whatever they mm-hmm. want, you know, they can believe what they want, they can practice the way they want or not practice, right? Do you see
0: religious leaders on the global stage having influence or being able to shift public attitudes or even beliefs about the narrative to believe within Russia?
1: Within Russia, I don't think so. I think in Russia, we have to look at what's going on within Russia. I mean, in Russia, the church and the state and so quote unquote symphony. So the Orthodox Church in Russia, you know, is fully supporting Putin. Um, so I don't expect, um, you know, and again, since given the media control, sort of very high level of repression in the society. So I think what faith leaders do globally, I personally don't expect that to make much difference for what's happening within Russia. But that's not to say that it's not important because I think what faith leaders do globally, as you said, like it may influence public opinion and sort of the attitudes um, of their own parishioners and faithful do they protest, right? Like how do they see this Russian aggression in Ukraine? I think what is very interesting to see what the Orthodox churches, especially those that are in various ways affiliated with Moscow uh, abroad, what do they do, right? Do they follow sort of Patriarch Kirill's line when he fully supports, you know, what's happened, Putin's action? Would they take a different stand, right? Would, say, Russian diaspora abroad that goes, you know, people to go to, to go to these Russian Orthodox churches abroad, would they see things differently from the way the conflict is presented in Russia, the aggression? Would they then maybe talk to their family members in Russia and tell them, like, hey, look, you know, that's what they're telling you on state TV, but that's actually not what's going on. So I think we might see these sorts of maybe indirect effects, But I don't think there is a direct effect from what faith leaders like the Pope and others would say or do and then what the Russian government would do in response.
0: As you're describing that, that soft power that faith leaders and faith communities can have in places where they shift and impact public opinion and, and thereby create sometimes a moral imperative for public leaders to take action. What would you like to see happen? What are you recommending to policy leaders and particularly those in Western Europe and in the United States?
1: Well, what I would recommend, and I think this is sort of one of the dangers and that, that doesn't happen, that they really realize what's it all about. That Putin wants to destroy Ukraine. He wants to remake the world order, European order, security architecture rights of countries to exist as separate entities. That's what it's all about. It's not about NATO. It is really the darkest hour of European history in many decades. So I would urge Western leaders to think ahead, to really understand what this conflict is about and not to say, oh, well, maybe if we like, don't try to anger Russia too much, they'll back off. Like, No, they won't. I would just re-emphasize that Putin, his delusion about Ukraine would be his undoing. The country wants to be free. The country has strong identity in no small part due to his previous aggressive action, and people are completely determined to not give in.
0: Dr. Oksana Shevnel, an associate professor of political science at Tufts University and the author of Migration, Refugee Policy and State Building in Post-Communist Europe. Coming up after the break, we hear from faith leaders on responding to a humanitarian crisis. Stay with us.